0: This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices.
1: So welcome to uh, uh, Reimagine Law and the next in our series of uh, podcasts. Um, Reimagine Law is all about uh, bringing to life the breadth and depth of the legal sector uh, and we always invite fantastic guest speakers to come and give us those insights today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Nicholas Cheffings to our uh, Reimagine Law podcast. Uh, I'm not going to say any more because uh, my first question to Nicholas is, give us a quick summary of your career, Nicholas, and and tell us a bit how you've seen the the legal sector change in the last 10 years.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Simon, and thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to join you uh, on this podcast. So in many respects, my uh, career is now coming to an end. Uh, It began many years ago. I did a law degree at the University of Leicester before... Uh, getting a position in what was then the largest in-house legal department in Europe. Uh, From there, I transitioned into private practice and spent 10 years at the firm, which is now known as CMS, uh, before joining uh, Hogan Lovells, uh, where I eventually became the global chair of the firm for six years before standing down as a partner. I uh, now have a consultancy with the firm, and I also am a consultant to the Crown Estate, where I am a special advisor, having been the interim head of legal and company secretary for a period of about nine months. Um, Beyond that, uh, in the context of reimagining law, I was the chair of Prime Commitment for six years, which is a charity established by law firms to expand social mobility and to reach out to those who might not otherwise have considered laws as a career in in a solicitor's law firm.
1: Fantastic. Thanks, Nicholas. I'm glad you've mentioned Prime because uh, we've been lucky enough to interview some, uh, uh, some of your uh, uh, individuals who were directors during your time at Prime right. to get some fantastic insights from them. So I'm glad you've referenced that. And that podcast is available um, uh, on obviously Reimagine
0: Law. How um, have you seen the legal sector change in the last 10 years, Nicholas? I think the change has been quite significant, quite dramatic in many respects. A number of features occur to me, really. I think one of them is the globalisation of law which has reflected in many ways the globalisation of our trade, our economy, uh, although clearly recent events are challenging that perception in some respects, um, but it means big big what is traditionally known as big city law is now big international, big global law. Um, I think there's been a general enhanced commercialisation of, of the practice of law, and that means a very, very distinct focus upon the business side of law rather than it purely being a technical delivery service of advice. It has to be that, it has to be first-class advice, but it has to be positioned in the context of commercial needs and, and business awareness. And law firms are not alone. i mean, in some respects at the leading edge of showing increased commitment to ESG as, as part of the way they go about their business. And that's really important as well. Um, I think uh, also, ironically, when I started my career, some of the best lawyers um, were in-house and legal departments. And then we went through a period where that was less so and and in-house legal teams shrank in size. And now unquestionably, a career in law in-house is a fabulous career uh, for any person. And some of the best lawyers I know um, are working in-house and not in private practice in law firms. I think the other piece probably I would focus upon is that the ways of getting into the profession of expanded materially and changed and and given new opportunities and touching upon my social mobility point really more and more organizations are now focused upon not hiring people from the traditional class that they've always hired from and recognizing the, uh, the social diversity economic diversity also brings cognitive diversity
1: Brilliant. Yes, thank you. Lots of really interesting points. And yes, some pretty significant change then over the last 10 years. If we then turn to look at skills, and this is something we've we've run a number of podcasts on on reimagine law, what are the skills that are going to be required when joining the sector now that will best support individuals to build a career in the sector?
0: That's a great question, if I may say so, Simon. Not that it's unusual for you to ask great questions, but I think it actually aligns in some respects to your previous question, because one of the things I didn't mention is the digitalization of law. And, you know, that's a reflection of what's happening elsewhere in society. But specifically in response to your question, you can have an amazingly successful career in, in the various different forms of the legal profession by, in quotes, just being a brilliant technical lawyer. But I think, for example, if you are going into to private practice in a law firm, and you have IT skills, if you can code and if you can program, if you can design apps, then you have the ability to put yourself and or your law firm in a significantly advantageous position compared with competitors. And, and it is a competitive market and you know, everybody wants the best clients, the best work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and having that little edge can make all of the difference. And, you know, when. We reflect that lawyers are operating in society. They need to reflect society and they reflect the needs of the clients who are in society. So, if the clients are spending 80% of their time digitally, whether it's in apps or whatever else it might be, social media, then if you're the only engagement that takes them out of that world with which they're very familiar, that's a challenge. If you are actually the only law firm who engages with them in that way, then that's a huge bonus. So, I think the duality of skills is quite important. And I would certainly say anybody going into the law shouldn't think, I must do a law degree. Um, I did. Um, That was just my choice at the time. And I thought it would be interesting. And and it was, largely. Um, And a lot of people come into the law having done something else. And if you come into the law having a scientific background, for example, you potentially are immediately at an advantage when you are giving advice in, say, the pharmaceutical or the life sciences area, and engineering can make you a significantly more skilled lawyer in construction work, or the ability, what it really comes down to is the ability to translate and position your legal advice in the commercial context in which the people that you're advising are operating. You're engaging, it helps to build the relationships, it builds confidence. So I would say all of the traditional skills you need, but I think one thing is really important to say, and that is that there is not a framework of skill sets to be a brilliant lawyer. There's several reasons for that. One of the reasons is the attributes, characteristics and skills you need to be a brilliant litigation lawyer and not necessarily the same, and indeed, I would say potentially quite different from the skills that you might need to be a brilliant advisory tax lawyer. And so, anybody coming into the lawyer into the law, I think, should come in with an idea of what they want to do, but they should take the time to work out whether their particular attributes are best suited to one particular area of the law. Because if you don't, if you don't particularly like Um, challenging, uh, challenging conversations, what some people might call arguments. I mean, they're clearly not in the legal context. But if you don't like the conflict type situation, litigation is never going to work for you. Um, And there's a whole raft of considerations like that, which mean technical skill sets, bring as many as you can to the table, but personal characteristics and attributes can help you work out which bit of the law is best suited to you. Does that make sense?
1: It does such a really important point, and I think it's uh, it's so important for people to understand. I really like that idea of you know there's one no, there's not one skill set that you need. I think that's such a great point to, to 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 raise, which again just plays back to the legal sector is open to everybody because your different personal attributes will actually make you better in certain different areas of the uh, of the law. So I think that's a really great point. Just changing tack a little bit, but I guess. In line with this idea of digitization, so in this world of hybrid working, some office, some home, how will law firms and teams be shaped to deliver for clients, do you think?
0: So I think one reflection of uh, the last couple of years or so is that there has been a clear recognition of the ability of lawyers to continue to perform to a very high level whilst not in the office and I say that because I think it is important because the traditional view has always been for the majority that working from home is the equivalent to not quite working from home. Um, now you know, even, even the most senior traditional lawyer who's been in the profession for 40 years would struggle to maintain that argument because life has gone on. Um, And therefore, I think the whole concept of of flexible working, hybrid working, um, has shown itself to be possible. And I think it opens the door to more firms thinking about different models. And I think that will include increased um, use of contract lawyers. So the flexibility of... Resourcing lawyers in some areas are well paid, not so well paid in others. But in any event, it's a it's a cost, and keeping people available because you think you're going to have enough work for them can be quite challenging for some firms, particularly smaller firms. But there's going to be an increase, I think, in the number of uh, lawyers who choose to largely work from home, but do that on a contract basis, on a supply basis for other firms and for business and industry and in-house teams and I think that's inevitable um, so I think an element of, of outsourcing might happen I think that also fits the, the supports some of the diversity initiatives that m- many in the profession are, are very committed to so I, I think that trend will continue but it's another example of what's changed in the last ten years I think really in terms of in terms of the model and you know that general flexibility really in terms of team shape but that said I I think that if you are part of a, a team you can't spend all of your time at home particularly if you're at the early stage of your career because with the best will in the world you, you miss out on some of the um, training that you need you learn and I'm sure you've experienced this yourself Simon on your own path you learn so much just by being in the presence of people who have more experience of you. Uh, than you do, and just listening to the way they handle meetings or listening to the way they have telephone conversations, um, uh, I I think you can't really do that effectively on Zoom, and you probably won't be invited to a Zoom or a Teams meeting to watch somebody have a conversation. So being in the being in the room uh, can be really important. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. Um,
1: uh, it- I never quite remember where I've learned this term from, but that kind of learning by osmosis, just being around other people Absolutely. really helps accelerate your, your, your learning. So that, that still matters. And I think particularly, as you said, at early stages of your career, a couple more questions for you, Nicholas. Um, next one. So law firms are legal partnerships. Can you briefly explain this structure and then share if you think this legal partnership structure is fit for purpose for the future?
0: Oh, you're putting me on the spot there, Simon. I guess I'll start with the easy bit. Um, So effectively, law firms are a combination of individuals who own the firm. So equity partners, as they're called, are people who have invested some of their capital into the business, and so they own a proportion of it. So a small two-person law firm, broadly speaking, means that it's owned by the two individual partners. And they are entitled equally to share in the profits that that firm makes, but out of the profits, they need to reinvest back into the firm. So sometimes when you hear enormous uh, numbers for law firm partners, it's also because they're reinvesting back in into the firm to, to, to support the business, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can have salaried partners and equity partners Basically, you could pursue a career in the law as um, it will have different names, but an assistant solicitor, an associate, apprentice solicitor, et cetera, et cetera. And there comes a point when you would be potentially considered for partnership. In some firms, they only have equity partners, which means you have to invest an element of capital into the firm in order to become a partner. And then you take a proportionate share of the profits that that firm may make. Some firms have salaried partners who are given the additional status of being a partner, but they don't have those obligations of contributing capital and they don't have that share of the profits that it makes. So that's how it works. It's a very, very traditional concept. Um, It's been developed over the last 20 years into limited liability partnerships so that in the old days, if everything went wrong and the firm went bankrupt, then the individual partner owners were responsible for all of the debts, including out of their own personal assets. Limited liability partnership doesn't carry that risk with it. But to your more challenging question, is it fit for purpose? I, I think that there are some question marks over there. And I think the best way I can answer that was, frankly, if you were starting with a blank piece of paper, you wouldn't design a partnership to run a law firm. Um, and there's a number, there are a number of reasons for that. But, you know, in small firms, I think it, it works perfectly uh, effectively if you've got uh, you know a handful small numbers of people who can meet on a regular basis and discuss all of the key decisions that need to be made by the business then then you can do that but in a in one of the, the bigger firms you know once you start getting into hundreds of partners as you do um and there are many firms with more than 100 partners now the idea that they own and contribute to the running of the business is is slightly more theoretical than real, because you cannot have um, 500, 800, 1000 partners making all the decisions that need to be made. And it's challenging even to make 800 partners involved in a meaningful way in the really, really important decisions. So you end up then with creating some form of management structure, and then you're getting much more akin to a normal limited company, really, where you have a board, an executive who are making all of the day-to-day decisions, and then from time to time, there's something uh, substantive or meaningful, which they will put out to the partners for consultation uh, in the same way that you might need to consult shareholders in a business, for example. But again, as an individual partner, you will often conclude, well, we've engaged a, a group of people to run our business for us. They're recommending this to us. I can't see any obvious flaw in it, so fine crack-on team, um, as opposed to really being involved in the heart of it. I think the other important thing in a partnership, and we're seeing this more, is not to assume, which was very much traditionally the case, that you know the person who'd been around the longest um, or the person who was most successful in winning new business should be the managing partner or the senior partner or whatever other name is given to the to the lead roles. Because coming back to the skill set point we mentioned earlier, just being a really good lawyer um, or certainly just being the oldest doesn't necessarily make you the best person to run a business. And and so firms are recognizing that more, um, but there's still a, quite a big step to go before they're bringing in, some have done it to obviously to particularly finance roles and others, but to bring in people to kind of chief executive or operations roles who are not lawyers uh, is I think a development which may continue over time.
1: Thank you, I, I think it's just really great to kind of shine a light on on those structures and, and, and how it works, because it is different to lots of other sectors. So uh, thank you yes. for, for doing that. And, and the metric I always use is I understood it. And so far <laughs> yeah. I understand it, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's a pretty yeah. good chance that other people will, not being yeah. a lawyer myself, so, indeed. Uh, or indeed working for a law firm. Uh, my final question uh, uh, for you today, And and it comes back to something you mentioned earlier when we're talking about skills, Nicholas, you were talking about, you know, there's no one skill set that's needed It'll depend on the area of the law that you go into. And you talked about difference between uh, uh, if you go in on the litigation side or the tax side. So it is different. So with that in mind, how important is it, do you think, to specialise and what are the pros and cons of
0: specialising early? So I think it's probably worth contextualizing that question before I answer it in the sense that our conversation mm-hmm. is not just about law firms and there are many, many different ways that one can be a lawyer and there are many different forms of the law. So you know, a criminal lawyer, to an extent, clearly specializes in in crime, um, but within criminal law, there can be particular elements that one specializes in, like fraud if you're in business you would tend to have a core area potentially but a but a broader a broader reach and again depending upon the scale of the organization and i think scale is probably the the piece that drives specialization the larger a a legal function is in many respects the more individuals become specialized but that said one if one's going into um a career as a barrister, most of those are specialising in one form or another. So the issue for me, I think, is do you decide what you want to be at an early stage of your career and focus upon that and hone it down as much as you can to be as expert and specialist as you can? There are clearly advantages in that, because within reason, you know everything there is to know about your area of the law, and that puts you at an advantage over other people who are more generalists. And in negotiating deals or in a piece of litigation or something like that, then that gives you and consequently your, your client um, an advantage. I do think, though, that there are some dangers in specializing too quickly, which is why I think the model of training contracts and indeed uh, increasingly the apprentice solicitor route and indeed um, the legal executive routes into the legal profession can have advantages because in those early days, you get to see more of the firm. And to your point, really, about learning by osmosis, I think one of the things about specialization is it's fine so long as the particular problem, question, challenge that you, you are posed is exclusively within your domain. But life is rarely that simple. And so many of the legal challenges that are put to you have nuances which bring in other areas of the law. And the danger of over-specialization is you don't even recognize that there are other areas of the law that you need to be addressing here. So I think a degree of generalized knowledge of the law is really helpful if for no other reason than when you get a problem, you can look at it from your own particular niche or niche, as the Americans would say, you could work out what the answer is, but you can also have that little light bulb moment when you think, actually, I think this deal might have some employment law consequences. I don't know what they are, but I do know it's got some employment law consequences. So I need to ask somebody else a question. And and if you've never had that broader experience, you potentially are going to miss out on those things or you end up just piling a transaction with lawyers from every particular area, just in case something crops up and what client is gonna be happy about paying for that kind of multi-layered service when in fact they possibly don't need most of the people sitting around the table. So there are clearly pros and cons. Um, I think if somebody has the opportunity, uh, I did this by circumstances and accident, not by some grand design, but I'm pleased I did. if you have the opportunity to start broader and narrow it down over time, I think that's really quite helpful because I think it makes you more rounded and therefore better able to, uh, to give the advice that you, you need to give. And um, and for me, I did that and then started broadening out in different directions afterwards as my, as my career developed. So, yeah, you know, there's, there's flexibility clearly as to about how we go about it. But, you know, certainly I've seen people think they want to specialise in litigation, go into a big law firm, and they've been so specialised in litigation that they've been focused upon one particular narrow area of it. And they call themselves litigators, but actually there's 50% of litigation that they've still not had any experience of. And that is something I would definitely caution against as an example.
1: That's it, Nicholas, thank you. I said that was the last question. I do have one more. Um, okay. Uh, uh, which is you know come back to what you said at the start you know you, you've uh, uh, built a, a clearly a very successful career in, in the legal sector for those people contemplating coming into the sector
0: what advice would you give that individual? I would be confident about my ability to succeed and if I looked around me and thought, this is not a world in which I can succeed because it bears no resemblance to the world in which I've grown up or the people with whom I've uh, shared my life so far, I wouldn't let that put me off um, because there is increasingly a very, very broad constituency of, of really talented lawyers. So I would definitely have confidence and inevitably accept that imposter syndrome exists, but don't believe that You're the only person who has it, because my experience is that, to varying degrees, most people do. Just some people hide it um, more effectively. So I think that would be a key key thing for me. Um, But fundamentally, if you have the privilege of choice, and I realise thousands/slash millions of people don't in what they do um, in their profession or work or to earn a living, if you have the privilege of choice the most important thing alongside being good at your job is to enjoy what you're doing and enjoy the people you're doing it with and if you're not then do something different fantastic thank you really lovely way to sum up nicholas
1: thank you and if i just reflect on everything you've shared uh over the last 25 minutes or so lots of really great stuff so uh starting with the kind of change you've seen in in the legal sector you know Uh, around globalization commercialization but also this growing focus on the purpose of law firms you know you talked about esg and you know firms really think about what their purpose is And, and there are more ways into the sector now and you were talking about from a socioeconomic diversity point of view. So I think it's great that that's something you've very clearly seen. We've talked about the skills that are needed. And if you can bring additional skills over and above legal skills, you talked about scientific or engineering, but, but basically that ability to put into context the law with clients in different sectors um, definitely seemed like uh, that's definitely a theme I've taken away. The changing world of work, thanks to COVID-19 and all that's brought. So bringing greater flexibility of working and hybrid working and evidence now, it definitely works, you know, and, and, and lawyers can deliver really good, high quality work, but don't have to be in the office to do that. But at the same time, the importance, particularly in the early stages of your career of spending time in the office around others that you can learn from and we talked a bit about that specialization and your reflections on um, as and when you might want to to do that and then finally your great comments about uh, if you do have choice do something you enjoy doing and believe in yourself and most people uh, have doubts Uh, They may not show it, but they do. Uh, And so believe in yourself and and believe in your abilities. So, Nicholas, thank you for sharing uh, uh, so much insight um, over over the long career that you've had in the legal sector. uh, And uh, from the team at Reimagine Law,
0: uh, a really big thank you. It's much Uh, appreciated. Thank you, Simon. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I continue to listen to your Reimagine Law podcasts. Thanks so much.